Now's the time to grab your scripture journal or open your app or your Bible. I really do want to encourage the use of the journals because there's some things that I think that if you'll write down and you'll take some notes, there will be some insights that you'll gain as we go into the week. And so I really just want to encourage you, if you haven't given that a try before, give it a try during this series and see if that doesn't uh, give God an opportunity to deepen your understanding in many ways. I also want to make an offer that we made before, and that's the Beyond the Sermon. And several of you have already signed up for this text. And what it simply is, is I send out a word of encouragement a word of insight, perhaps a song, another scripture that relates, following the sermon sometime this week as a way to encourage you, to remind you uh, to do that. And so if you haven't signed up yet, just simply text the word beyond to the number that you see uh, on the screen. And if you're part of our live stream audience from around the world, you're also welcome to do that as well because you'll receive this just like everyone else is. And many of you have signed up, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback. Just so you know, if you receive that text and then you reply to it, it does not go to everybody's phone. It just comes right back to me. And so that's been a way that I've been able to answer some questions that people have had. And this is a series that we're probably going to have some questions in because Paul takes this in some very powerful ways. So I want to make that available to you as well. With that in mind, I always want to start with prayer. And I want to end with prayer. And so if you would, let's begin this way now. Father, as we approach your word, would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds to it? Father, all the places that we want to push back. All the places that we think that it's too good to be true. Would you be at work? Father, would you do exactly what you've promised that your word is powerful and it changes lives. Father, ask all this in the name of Jesus, the one who your word points to. Amen. I want to start today, I thought a lot about this, how to start this sermon today, given the material that we're going to cover. And the only way that seemed appropriate was with a straightforward question. And so here's the question. Did you ever play dodgeball? Did you ever enjoy dodgeball? So, now, a couple things. First of all, that gets an amen out of my preaching. I want amens. Save a few of them for later because we've got some good stuff coming. Dodgeball is one of those childhood experiences that I think they're trying to outlaw at some level now, but... For those of us that came from a tougher generation, dodgeball was no-holds-barred kind of deal. And there's a phrase that got shouted over and over and over and over again in any game of dodgeball. And I don't care whether you played it in the north, you played it in the south. Just as the balls were whizzing, as everybody was throwing as hard as they could, and those rubber playground balls would conform around your face as it came in at 90 miles an hour... Somebody on the other side that had thrown the ball would yell, what? You're out. 
And that was a sense of accomplishment because what you were doing is you're knocking somebody else out or you heard it declared about you and you knew you had been knocked out. That is such a metaphor, is it not, for so much of our lives, especially as we grow up. The idea that either you're in or you're out. And that somebody else would declare you're out. It is no longer appropriate for you to be here. It's no longer a part of whatever's going on in the activity. You're out of it. Now, we grow up playing dodgeball even if we didn't use an actual dodgeball, but we used our words, right? And perhaps you've received that sting on more than once where somehow somebody lets you know that you're out. You don't fit. You don't conform anymore. Perhaps it was a group of friends. Perhaps it was a best friend. Perhaps you heard it from a workplace. You're not part of us. Perhaps you heard it from a family member and maybe a family came to you and said, whatever, you're out. Perhaps you heard it from a spouse. But we live with that sting, don't we, and those wounds that come from that. And so the challenge for us, though, as followers of Jesus then becomes, how do we carry all of that before a God and then understand our place before Him because once you hear you're out, you're out, you're out, you're out, it's hard to believe in a God that says you're in. But that's where Paul's going to take us today. Paul, the one that wrote this letter to churches in the area of Ephesus close to 2,000 years ago. And you've heard me say that what they were dealing with is so very closely aligned in culture and dynamic to what we're dealing with today that these words, if you'll give them a chance, if you'll allow yourself to hear them, maybe you've heard them many, 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 many times before, but I'm going to ask you if you would try to hear them fresh this morning. You'll hear God telling you where you stand before him. And for some of you, this will simply be a reminder and encouragement, but I hope not just a simple one, but a powerful one. And for some, this may be good news that you don't even believe can be true from what Paul's going to describe to us. So if you have. Your scriptures. We're looking at this letter that Paul wrote so many years ago. And in the letter, in it, he calls for the church to be awake. He calls for followers of Jesus to wake up and pay attention. And just what we said from last week is the church wrestles between the Two tensions right now in, in our world today, in our current culture, that Paul speaks to both sides. On one side, it's the idea that we're just simply asleep. That we're asleep and we're asleep at the wheel and we don't even understand what God has done for us. Or all we become consumed with is what happens on the inside of the church. 
And as long as I feel like I'm okay, I can judge anybody else that I want, I can, I can um, feel superior in my right position, and I don't have to do anything because I'm right. And what we said last week is ultimately that becomes a graceless truth where we forget the call of Jesus to love your neighbor. On the other side, a church can easily be what we're referring to as woke. And that's where the church begins to listen more to the streams of culture, more to the idea of what can we tear down? How can we put our confidence into that which is secular out there? And Paul doesn't want either asleep or woke, but he's going to call us to be awake. And so our task over these next several weeks as we explore this letter is to allow Paul to define for us, God's Word to define for us, what it means to be awake. And so with that, here's these words. I'm going to read through this passage. Well, I'll get to that in a second. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to, let's start with just a couple of verses right at the beginning, though, and then we'll, then we'll read through. He begins this letter this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see I've highlighted a couple of phrases up here. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it would be really easy to run right past this sentence and get into the more media parts of the letter, but what Paul is doing is he's setting up, in a very specific way, his worldview. Because he's telling these Christians two realities already that exist. He says, you're in Ephesus and you're in Christ Jesus. He's acknowledging their addresses in two locations. He doesn't say to the saints who are in Christ Jesus who happen to live in Ephesus. He says, the saints who are in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. And here's what I believe, because Paul has a particular worldview. When we think of this life, we tend to think of this life now, and heaven is something that comes after this life. Heaven's not here. It's not around us. Heaven's somewhere out there, maybe up there. But whatever it is, what happens is we think this life now and all of its struggles and all of its miseries and all of its challenges and maybe every now and then some joys, but ultimately this life now. And then someday heaven shows up long after we've passed away. But see... Paul doesn't see it that way. In fact, he's a very faithful Jew, and the Jewish people wouldn't have seen it that way. Here's a statement that, if you want to write this down. For Paul, heaven and earth are actually overlapping spheres. They're overlapping arenas or areas of existence. And so, here's just a simple illustration uh, this would be Paul's worldview, not heaven comes someday, but the heaven, or oftentimes what your scriptures actually say is the heavens. For some reason, it's, many times it's plural in that. But heavens is where God reigns. It's where he sits upon his throne. It's where his dominion is fully known and recognized. And then earth, 
exist, but this is where the curse has some free reign. But there is some very, in Paul's understanding, there's some very intentional and specific places where heaven and earth overlap. Paul, being a faithful Jewish person as he grew up, the temple would have been one of those places. It would have been the main place. That something about where you came to the temple, and as long as the temple stood, that was in this overlapping space, and it was a means by which heaven and earth overlapped, and God's reign broke into this world. So Paul is seeing that. So when he says to the Christians who are in Ephesus, here's your earthly address, and at the same time exist in Christ Jesus in a heavenly address. And so for Paul, and this is going to be important as we start figuring out what is our posture and what is our position in Christ, before God is, Paul's going to say, you exist right here where God's reign is breaking into the world. You live in a now and a not yet, fully knowing that because of the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that something has happened. And that there's going to become a full revelation of that, a revealing of that, sometime to come, when the heaven sphere completely consumes the earthly sphere. In fact, this is why when you get into Revelation, you have very clear imagery. What the writer of Revelation, John, refers to as the new heavens and the new earth. And in that story, it's the heavens that come down and completely occupy the earth. This is the biblical worldview that Paul sees. And so he's now about to unpack and describe your entrance into and position in this world view. So if you would, I'm going to read 3 through 14. And we're going to read straight through and then we're going to walk back through it. As we read, I encourage you, if you've got a journal out and you want to see, some, you want to, you see a thing that jumps out at you, Highlight it, circle it. That'll be something that you can go back and reflect on this week. Here's the words of God from Paul, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What I've just read to you is one of the most densely packed theological statements you're going to find in all of Scripture. That is, by every definition, a multivitamin. And it's not easy to swallow because there is a lot going on. What may surprise you is that from verses 3 through 14... When Paul wrote it in the Greek, it is one single sentence. It would drive English teachers up the wall to try to diagram that. It's one carefully crafted sentence. For Paul, it's actually poetry. When you get back into the Greek, it's a poem that he's writing. And what he is doing is he is trying to establish that heavenly address that this is your place before God this is what God has done and so what I want to do is I want to walk back through that and try to reveal and peel some of these back remember last week we said that Paul's structure for this whole letter is that verses 1 through 3 he's revealing the person of Jesus Christ his grace and the gospel message in 1 through 3 It's our job to understand what he's revealing, to witness that. Four, five, and six, how do we live that out once we've seen it? So what Paul is beginning the process right here is he is launching into, here's how to see what's been revealed in Christ. Here's the revelation of that and understanding our place in that. What I I would encourage you with is if you're taking notes, is that this actually breaks down into three movements. Okay? Just so you can write this down, if you want to make a quick note in your journal, verses 3 through 6, A, kind of that first part, the focus of that section, of that part of the sentence, is God the Father. 3, three through 6. The second half of 6, 6B through 11, 6b through 11, the focus of that is Jesus Christ. 12 through 14, you want to guess? Holy Spirit. Paul is presenting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this very compact, concise framing of what God has done. So walking back through, verse 3, listen to who has the verbs. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will. God has all the verbs. And there's a lot of powerful ones with this. He blessed us in Christ. He chose us in him. We're made holy and blameless before him. The story of salvation is not about how you found God. The story of salvation is how God found you and on your behalf when you were powerless to do anything. God went into action. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I am so far from God that I am way out of his reach. And Scott, if we just sat down for a moment, I could tell you stories that would curl what little hair you have left. And it would make you agree with me that I'm pretty far out of God's reach. What Paul would say is, that's exactly how God found Every single one of us. He's going to go through chapters 1, 2, and 3 and remind us again and again and again that if you are under some kind of impression that you helped God out somehow in your salvation process, He's going to suggest that you're not a follower of Jesus. Because He says God does that work. And He's trying to reveal that to us. And so he uses some powerful language. One of the language that I want you to look at, he uses this word adoption. And again, this is where Paul's telling his worldview. And in adoption, we think, we typically think in today's world, we think about small children, and it's very emotional, it's often very sweet and loving, and there is something very powerful about it. When Paul is thinking about adoption, he's thinking about the Roman model of adoption. And that was not children, but that was grown adults. There became a very powerful line in the Caesars. Julius Caesar began this, and he adopts August, who became Augustus Caesar, Octavius. He became Augustus Caesar. He adopts him. He puts it in his will that when he passes, he then adopts him. And that occurred at age 18 upon Caesar's assassination. What you're saying in adoption in that model is not we hope you grow into somebody. It's that we see in you the person that I want to receive all of my inheritance, my wealth, my power, the loyalty of the legions will be placed in you. And that's what the language that Paul uses for us. Verses 6b through 11. Picks up with the word with. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, the beloved, that is Paul's word right there for Jesus. And now he's going to keep referring back to the beloved. So this is the movement that's Jesus-focused. And you just need to highlight verses 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have forgiveness. Here's the beloved. God did something through His beloved, through Jesus. We received that. What do we receive? We receive 
forgiveness and redemption. We are redeemed. We are made whole again. Whether it was done to you by your, or by your own choices, we have suffered the curse, and now we're being made whole again, not by my power, not by yours, but by through what God's doing through Jesus. And look at how he says this. He says, he lavished upon us. Now, that goes against some of your views of God, doesn't it? Because some of us walk around thinking God's really strict and he's a miser. And every now and then he may toss us a few crumbs, but nothing ever more than that. He says, he lavished on you in all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight. He wants you to understand the revelation of who Jesus is. Making known to us, look, watch how he completes this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. He's saying when you come to understand the revelation of Jesus, it changes everything. And why does Paul say that? Because that is exactly Paul's story. If you're unfamiliar with the story, you can find it in Acts. Paul was a threat to the early church. Paul had in his hands the papers that gave him the authority to arrest, torture, and imprison those that were following Jesus. And he is on such a mission when Jesus stops him on what we now call the Damascus Road. And he has a face-to-face encounter with the risen Christ. And his world gets turned upside down and inside out. And he realizes that the one that he's been fighting against is the one that is all the hope of Israel. And now Paul begins to share this whole new message. And he says, that's the kind of revelation. It was revealed to me and I want it revealed to you. And then he ends with the Holy Spirit. Picking up in the very last verses. Verse 11. In him, Jesus, we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to praise to the praise of his glory. Some of us live with this idea that Jesus' blood redeems me. But now, the living out is up to me. Does that, does that make sense? That, that God's blood can justify me, but the idea of me living a holy life is now up to me. Now, I've got a, I got there by grace, but now I have to live by my own grit. Make sense? Nothing can be further from the truth. Paul is calling us into that space between heaven and earth where they come together and says to live there where your new address is, is living in the supernatural power. If it was the natural power of Scott, I'd be a complete mess. It could not be up to me. 
but there is a supernatural power, and it's not a what, it's a who in the person of the Holy Spirit that when we move into that space, by the blood of Jesus, now we are given what Paul refers to as a seal. A seal was very important back then. It was what came on letters and documents, and it meant that it came with authority, and it came with approval, and it was blessed And so Paul's saying, you've got the Holy Spirit. This is your new address. Now, Paul uses some language in here that I'm going to unpack really quickly because this is where we're going to end. Because he uses lots of words that have become very big if you grew up in church. And for some of these words, might scare you. Because he has words like, predestined, chosen in there, before time you were selected. He he talks in this kind of language. And what we've done over the years is we've built up this idea that for most of us, predestination starts to take on this feeling that that God in heaven has already selected the people that are going to get to make it to heaven. And that what he's done is he's gone like a game of duck-duck-goose. Yes, 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 no. No, no, yes, no, yes, no. Does anybody have this idea of predestination? And that you're really not going to be sure if you're in or out until the end. So you kind of live in this tension all the time that I think maybe he selected somebody else. That's not what's in Paul's mind when he thinks about predestination and being chosen. Now, I'm going to show you that. First of all, to get there, we have to understand some pronouns. Pronouns are very big in our world right now. Well, here's some ones that I think are very important. Whenever you see the word you in Ephesians, it's always translated the Greek word y'all. I spent a lot of time on this slide. Do you like it? Okay. I'm not even kidding. The word that Paul uses is always a plural you. So it applies to everybody. We tend to take it as a singular individual you, don't we? When you read through Scripture, you think, okay, it's me. He means y'all. And every time you see it in Ephesians, just think y'all. Say it out loud, y'all. This is what Paul's saying. Now, what I want you to do is look with me back in 6 through, I mean, sorry, 3 through uh, 14 here, because Paul has a different idea of predestination. What Paul is seeing is he's remembering the story of the Bible, not just some story that starts in the New Testament, but the whole Bible. God created the earth. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. They sinned. There was a fall. There was a breaking of relationship, so God makes a promise. He selects one man, Abraham. Out of Abraham, he's going to make a family. Out of a family, he's going to make a nation. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, From you I will bless the nations. His family grows, becomes the nation of Israel. God tells the nation of Israel, From you I will bless the nations. Israel doesn't do a good job at that. They continue to stumble and fall, and when they're supposed to bring life, they bring death and curses most of the time. Out of Israel, though, comes one chosen 
Jesus. Abraham was chosen, predestined. Israel was chosen, predestined. Then Jesus was the ultimate chosen one in the Messiah, means anointed, in the Messiah. And every time it's used, the idea is that out of the many, God will choose one through whom he will return his blessings to the many. That's the role that Israel played. That's the role that he wants the church to play. What Paul is saying when he says we were predestined, he's saying this is Israel's story. Israel was predestined, was chosen. Watch what he does. Let me show you this really quickly. If you go scanning back through it, look at the number of times he says we in the first parts of the, of the Scripture. Um, we or us. Uh, Verse 3, he blessed us. Verse 4, even as he chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through the blood. If you trace it all the way through, it's us, we, us, we, us, we, which makes sense until you get to the very end Verse 13, he knows the words for us and we. In him, y'all also, when y'all heard the word of truth. Well, wait, if, are we the we or in the y'all? The we, as Paul is saying, this is the story of Scripture, is that we, he chose us to bless the many. Jesus has come and blesses the many. Now, then he gets to 13, and this is the exciting part because he's saying, and now y'all are invited to the party because you heard the word and you're a part. His idea of predestination is not at all God chose you and you, but not you. Because he's writing this, he has no problem saying y'all to everybody in the church in Ephesus. He does not go through a list and says some will, some won't. He says, y'all, here's the thought that I want you to take away. If your previous identity in Christ, if your idea of predestination, after reading 3 through 14, causes you to worry, you've got the wrong understanding of the passage. Because what it should call you to do and what, it, what Paul wants it to do, because this is how he wrote it, he wants it to call you to worship. Your identity in Christ should lead you to worship, not worry. Paul would be astonished if you read that in our modern way of thinking today and said, boy, now I am anxious because I wonder if I'm in or out. Paul would go, are you kidding me? You should be on your knees praising God right now after reading that. Because that's what God has done for you. So this is where the church needs to wake up. Because we need to be bold. God has done the unbelievable. And he is now creating a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to be part of it. And he's invited us in by the power of his word through what's been proclaimed about Jesus Christ. 
that this is ours. And that should fuel us. See, we need to understand our place in this story, and it is unbelievably good. And so the world around us, remember, the idea of the elect is that Abraham, then Israel, and Jesus fulfills it, and now we're invited in, into the y'all, we're invited in to participate in that grand story, and now to be chosen means that he's chosen you out of the many, he's chosen the church out of the many to bless the many. That's our role. So here's a fundamental teaching that we need to understand. The world desperately needs a church that is fully awake. That's not afraid and hiding in its own confines like it's in some shelter. And it doesn't need us to partake in everything that culture is going to throw our way. But we understand our place in God and we are the ones that proclaim the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world. And God is in charge, and Jesus is on the throne. That's where you can say amen. So here's what I'm going to ask. Here's what I want you to reflect on this week. And if, I'm going to give you a question, and actually I want you to take some time in your journal this week, if you would. And just reflect on this. As a follower of Jesus... Does your life reflect worry or worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those here that have heard the phrase, you're out, you're a lost cause, we give up on you. Would you help us to hear with fresh ears our place before you. Chosen, adopted, called. And Father, would you wake us up to that identity so that we would now turn around and be a blessing to the nations, be a blessing to the neighborhood, be a blessing to our family, Father. Would you help us to so see our place before you that we can't help but to worship and our life will reflect it. Father, I thank you for all that you've done for us through Jesus. Now help us to live by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.